This is relatively prime. Research in the mathematical domain. I am Samuel Hansen. And welcome to the first episode of the Cycle of Mathematics miniseries, where we are going to be tracing mathematical research from its beginning, just as an idea, through its publication, all the way to its inspiration of other mathematicians to do their own research. This episode is The Six Handshakes. Okay, so my name is Duncan Watts, and I'm a principal researcher at Microsoft Research in New York. Uh, then if you could say the name of the paper that I'm talking to you about today. The name of the paper is uh, Collective Dynamics of Small World Networks uh, by uh, myself and Stephen Strogatz, published in Nature in 1998. Right, so I was a graduate student uh, at Cornell University uh, in the Department of Theoretical and Applied Mechanics back in the mid-1990s. I had already been there for one year, and I'd been working on uh, problems in the area of what was then called chaos theory. I was sort of having a bit of a crisis of confidence at the time. This guy showed up who was an excellent teacher and uh, seemed like somebody that I could Steve Strogatz, who had just uh, started there as a as a as a young uh, faculty member, and so uh, I started talking to him about um, being his graduate student. Steve and I started working on some problems to do with with the synchronization of populations of crickets. And while I was working on it, I had a conversation with my dad on the phone one night, and he said, "You know, have you ever heard of this?" idea that everybody in the world is connected to the president of the United States by just six handshakes. I hadn't heard of that. And I wondered, you know, if it were true, you know, could you could you prove that it was if true? If it were true for social networks, true for other kinds of networks, networks of, of crickets synchronizing, financial networks, networks of disease, there was a math problem in there somewhere. I spent a lot of my time in the fall of 1995, instead of working on what was supposed to be my dissertation project, I was sort of noodling over this idea that I was that I was putting together in my head. And eventually I thought, you know, I really should tell Steve about this. I, you know, I was a graduate student and I was a little nervous about telling anybody this idea that I had because I thought it's probably stupid, it's probably wrong. Someone else has done it. It was, a, it was a really interesting moment where, you know, I, I sort of went into his office and started sort of pitching this, this vision that I had for, you know, networks and dynamics and the small world problem. Well, I didn't know it was called the small world problem back then, but that's what we were talking about. And, you know, I really thought he was just going to say something sort of condescending and, and dismissive and tell me to get back to my work. But he listened and he said, you know, that's that sounds really interesting. And I don't know what it's called and I don't know what branch of mathematics it is, really. It's probably something to do with graph theory, but I don't really know anything about graph theory. But it's not really just graph theory. It's also about dynamical systems, but it's a something it's an idea that's sort of new to dynamical systems. So, you know, I'm, I'm not really confident that I could advise you in this project and 
it's not really clear what we could figure out. And if we could figure something out, it's not really clear where we'd be able to publish it. Uh, and it's not really, it, it's, it's probably not something that you should do if you're interested in having an academic career. You know, so if you want to, you know, uh, be a professor of mathematics somewhere, you should probably stick with, you know, mathematical biology, which is what you're working on now. But if you tell me that you're, you don't care about that and you just want to do what you want to do, you know, I'll let you work on it for a semester and we'll, we'll see how it goes. I went home over the Christmas break to Australia and told my parents that I was doing this. And then I, I came back really sort of energized in January and, and we started working on this, this problem. It was really a, 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 an incredibly fun intellectual adventure. And, you know, sure enough, by the end of uh, the spring semester, I had made enough progress that we thought we could continue. And so I stuck with it and I ended up writing my, my dissertation on the structure and dynamics of small world networks. Now, the first paper that, that came out of that that work was was this paper that was that was published in Nature. So how did how did you go about kind of starting to do the research on this? Like what was your actual like day-to-day -day steps when you were sitting there trying to figure this out? The world of dynamical systems was was mostly uh most of the work had been done under the assumption of what is called the mean field assumption. You just sort of assume that that everyone uh, in your population is is in contact with everyone else, or is just as likely to be in contact with with everyone of course, else. We know that in the real world, nothing is really like that. It's not the case that in any sort of significant sized population, <clears throat> you know, everyone is just as likely to interact with everyone else. There's there's sort of some structure to the world. Uh, that's clearly important. And so there had been some other work, a little bit of work, that had been done studying dynamical systems on lattice. You could imagine people are sort of spread out on a blanket uh, so that uh, there's a two-dimensional lattice where you're only interacting with your neighbors. And so there had been some work done on, on 1 and 2D lattices. And it seemed to me that everything real in the world, <clears throat> particularly in social networks but most other networks as well, was somewhere in between. I kept thinking about my own life and how I had just moved from Australia to the U.S. for graduate school. And my friends at Cornell pretty much all knew each other, and my friends back in Australia all knew each other. But none of my friends in Australia knew any of my friends at Cornell, and the only thing connecting them was me. And so I had this uh, idea that, that I was sort of acting like a bridge, between these otherwise distant parts of the network. That was basically what we did. We imagined a world that began as a very orderly structured world where everybody was either arranged on a lattice or was somehow grouped together in this very uh, tight, uh, everyone who you're friends with is friends with each other sort of arrangement. And then into that world, you would introduce increasing levels of randomness. Imagine, you know, introducing more people like me into the world. We sort of really just built that intuition 
into this model in a sort of nice, simple, formalized way. And that allowed us to uh, to, to, to define a, a sort of class of models where we could, with a single parameter, uh, tune our world between a highly clustered world or a highly ordered world and something that was entirely random. There were two metrics, clustering coefficient, average path length that we were we were using as as yardsticks to 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 describe these networks that we were creating. Clustering coefficient, the average probability that that two of your friends will be friends with each other. In a highly clustered world, that gets very close to one, where everybody who you're friends with is friends with each other. And in a random world, it doesn't ever quite go to zero, but it goes very close to zero. Average path length, the number of degrees of separation. If there's a thousand people arranged in a ring and everybody is is connected just to their nearest neighbors. It takes 500 steps to go from where you are around to the other side of the ring. And, you know, that's a good approximation of the average number of steps that it takes to get from anyone to anyone else. When everyone's interacting randomly, the number of steps grows like the logarithm of the size of the network. That's a much, much smaller number. And we found this surprising result that as you go from the, the highly clustered but long path length world to the random case where you have low clustering and short path lengths, the path length drops off a cliff. So just adding in a handful of random edges drives down the average path length to something pretty close to its eventual limit. Whereas the clustering coefficient stays very high for a long time. This intermediate range of networks that had short path lengths but high clustering, this is what we call small world networks. All sorts of networks could potentially have this property and they don't have to be social networks anymore because there's nothing about sort of social relationships in the way that we have defined these models. Power grids could be like this, neuronal networks could be like genomic this. networks, all sorts of networks could potentially have this property. We should go and look. You know, this is now, you know, 1997 and, you know, there wasn't a lot of network data around at that time. We were lucky and we found a couple. We had three examples. The first was a network that had been created by a computer scientist at the University of Virginia, Brett Jaden. Brett had had built a website where he had pulled all the, the data from the back end of, of the Internet Movie Database at the time and had constructed the, the graph of, of all of Hollywood. It was called the Oracle of Bacon, inspired by this, this game that some fraternity brothers from some college in Pennsylvania had come up with called the, uh, the Kevin Bacon game. They'd pick a name of an actor and they would figure out how to connect that actor to Kevin Bacon. They had uh, determined that Kevin Bacon was sort of somehow amazingly the center of the Hollywood universe. People were very sort of surprised by this, uh, that, that everyone could be connected to Kevin Bacon by, by, by fewer than six steps. As it turns out, you, they could have picked anyone. And this was also one of the predictions of our, of our model, that there was nothing special about uh, Kevin Bacon. But uh, Brett was kind enough to give us his data uh, he gave us his whole network, and we were able to to compute the clustering coefficient and the the path length. And sure enough, we got exactly the result that we had 
uh, been expecting from our model, that the clustering coefficient was really high and the path length was really short. Uh, and not just for, for Kevin Bacon, but for everyone to everyone. So we were really encouraged by this. We thought this was a big confirmation of, of our ideas, but we thought we should be more bold. We should look for other kinds of networks, networks that are not even close to social networks, that don't even have people in them. We were talking to some colleagues of ours in the Department of Electrical Engineering, Jim Thorpe and, and Kony Bai, and uh, they were working on the power grid. So we just said, listen, you know, do you happen to have that network? Uh, and they said, yeah, yeah, we've got it. You know, and so they sent it over and on some floppy disks. Totally different network to the Kevin Bacon game. Instead of, instead of a couple of hundred thousand movie actors connected by movies, you have power stations connected by high-voltage transmission cables. I mean, it couldn't be more different. And yet it still had these same two properties, that the clustering coefficient was a lot uh, higher than you would expect from a random graph, but the, the, the path length was about the same. So this really was very exciting, and we thought, okay, we're, we're on to something here. But we really wanted something from biology. Steve recalled that, that there's this worm called C. elegans, which was identified by Sidney Brenner, uh, at Cambridge University back in the 1960s as a, a model organism. And in the 1980s, Brenner and a couple of his collaborators published this monumental work where they, they systematically uh, sliced up a bunch of these worms and took uh, electron microscope photos of the slices and then reconstructed from these slices the uh, the wiring diagram of the C. elegans nervous system. It took them like 20 years to do this, and they published this 300-plus page paper. Brenner got the Nobel Prize for this work. And so we were happy to kind of ride on the backs of these giants and uh, just get the wiring diagram for this this nervous system that had been put on a floppy disk in a book in the library. Actually, they had lost the floppy disk. That's how important they thought it I was. I thought, okay, that's it. We're, we're out of luck. And then a couple of days later, the Cornell librarian called me back and said, no, we found the floppy disk. So I ran over there. And, you know, it's, it's amazing to think that this was how we did things. <laughs> After cleaning the data up, uh, we performed the same measurements on it and, and found, once again, that, that the clustering coefficient was, was, was high and the path length was short. So, so now we had three examples that were totally different uh, types of networks with vastly different scales and from very different domains and uh, with very, very different functionalities. They all had this small world property. Uh, so with that, we thought, okay, we've got a story now. Uh, it still wasn't clear how we would tell a story or who would believe it or what, you know, what, uh, where to publish it. Is that kind of why you ended up going for nature? Nature was, was Steve's idea. I would read journals, of course, but I never really thought about why people had published their paper in one journal versus another. So, you know, he said, let's send it to Nature. And I said, okay, you know, whatever you want, you're the boss. But it was still a, still a big, big stretch because even though Nature publishes papers across different disciplines, each paper itself fits within a discipline. Even if the, paper, the journal is sort of a general science journal, the reviewers are not general purpose scientists. They're specialists. And so the risk was that the paper would get sent to a, a graph theorist 
who would say this is this just doesn't count as a contribution. Or it to would get sent theory. to a physicist who would say this sounds a little bit like percolation theory, but not Even very interesting. So I look at it and say I don't think it's yeah, important. I've heard of the small world problem. I don't really see how this is that different. You know, so if you sort of viewed this contribution through the lens of, you know, how does it add to some existing discipline, the answer would probably be not very much. So, so how did you, how did it end up getting through review? Well, it almost didn't. We sent it off, uh, you know, and then, you know, we hadn't heard from them for a couple of months and I was thinking, this isn't looking very good. And I was getting very discouraged and was actually thinking about quitting. You know, I was, uh, I was a postdoc at Columbia at that point, And um, I was just getting kind of discouraged by the whole thing. I thought, ah, oh, maybe I should just go work in finance. I was actually standing at the fax machine with my CV and I was gonna send it to a, to a hedge fund. And uh, I noticed a typo in my CV. And I thought, ah, I'm tired. I'll, I'll just, I'll fix it tomorrow. And I went home. And when I came in the next morning, I had an email from the editor of, <coughs> of Nature saying, we're interested, but, you know, we have some reservations and we want you to, to send us a revision. What had happened is that they had sent it to two reviewers. And one of them, who turned out to be Jim Collins at Boston University, he had really liked it, but he had a lot of questions and, and, and constructive criticism. And then the second reviewer had obviously not liked it at all, but had written one of the shortest reviews I've ever read. He said, I have no idea what this paper is about, but it shouldn't be published in Nature. And so this was obviously a very negative review, and very easily they could have rejected it on those grounds. Certainly, if the reviewer number two had written a few more sentences about why he thought it was such a bad paper, we would have been rejected, but he didn't. And so the editor, in her wisdom, decided that she didn't have enough information, and so she sent it to a third reviewer, and he loved it. That was what got us back on track. I told Steve what had happened. He was on sabbatical down at the NIH down in Maryland. And so the next day, I hopped on a train and went down to Maryland and, and, and spent the week down there. And we banged out a, a revision. Jim Collins, one of his one of his main recommendations was that we. He said you need a you need a you need a figure you need a diagram you need a picture explaining your algorithm because I don't really follow what you're doing. He had just described it in words. I thought it was totally obvious. There was no need for. I couldn't understand why he, like, why did this guy need a picture? Like I'd already. But told it was him the what best was suggestion that anyone has ever made to me in my entire career because. That picture, the figure one from that nature paper, is far and away the most reproduced figure from anything I've ever published. And like it's the thing that is I remember making that figure on, on Adobe Illustrator, sitting there sort of complaining about all these buddy arcs that I had to draw on this thing because this one reviewer couldn't understand what I was talking about. So we sent the revision back in and um and, you know, it pretty much was smooth sailing from that point on. And then uh, just the most remarkable thing. Uh, so I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read the, the final paragraph of the paper. Uh, 
We hope that our work will stimulate further study of small world networks. Their distinctive combination of high clustering with short characteristic path length cannot be captured by traditional approximations such as those based on regular lattices or random graphs. Although small world architecture has not received much attention, we suggest that it will probably turn out to be widespread in biological, social, and man-made systems, often with important dynamical consequences. Uh, that that paragraph to me, uh, you know, being able to look at uh, with a bit of hindsight seems to be rather prescient. Did you kind of have have any sort of expectation of what sort of would happen with with network science after you had published this paper? None. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean. We- Look, I mean, I think I was always ambitious. You know, I think I always wanted to have big ideas. You know, when I was daydreaming about it, I would imagine having made some big contribution to science. But I think in the light of day, if you'd asked me, like, what do you think the reaction to this paper is going to be? I probably wouldn't have thought it would be I mean, I, it wouldn't have been anything like what it actually was. I was actually in Spain at the time uh, when it came out. I was at a conference near Barcelona. And, you know, Steve had warned me when I was on my way over there. He said, listen, you know, you know, nature is giving us a bit of attention in their press release. And so, you know, you might want to take a, a calling card with you because this is like 1998. So... I took one of these like prepaid calling cards that you could use to call from a payphone, and all of a sudden I was getting emails from the New York Times and Science News and New Scientist and you know all these publications that I've been reading for years. And, and I'm driving around the countryside of Catalonia with a couple of my friends who are at the conference with me, and I would have to stop every couple of hours and go to a payphone and talk to some journalist about about this paper. And, you know, they would sort of sit there by the side of the road wondering when I was going to be done. And, you know, I'm in some post office in a small town and this woman is yelling at me in Catalonia, which I couldn't understand a word of while I'm trying to do an interview with somebody in a, oh, it was just sort of, it was just really blew my mind. You know, I just was uh, 27 years old. And as my dad put it, he said, it's all going to be, it's all going to be downhill from here. And uh, I thought that was an incredibly cynical thing to say, but it's certainly the most uh, attention that, uh, that, you know, I've ever gotten for anything that I've done. You know, it still took a few years for, you know, network science to become a thing. Academia is a pretty conservative institution. It takes time to move. You know, there weren't any real jobs for network. I mean, there weren't any jobs for network scientists uh, back then. There wasn't even a word for it. So I was, I was still doing my postdoc at Columbia. But you know, even with all the interest that the paper was generating, there was no money to continue my postdoc. I had to leave, and the only place I could get a job was at the the Santa Fe Institute. I did not want to move to Santa Fe. It was the only job I had. So I went there and, and the Institute's great. And I still sort of feel like I'm part of the family. I was there. pretty unhappy about living in, in New Mexico. I really wanted to live in New I, York. Uh, I got another postdoc with a with an old friend of Steve's, professor at MIT in, in the business so school. So I did that for a year. So I did three postdocs in three years, which is not something I recommend to anybody. Uh, and then I, I was... Uh, 
I was able to get back to Columbia, which is really where I wanted to be. Uh, but this time in the sociology, I really had to learn a whole new discipline. I, I, you know, I, I was, I found myself at the age of 29 teaching classes in sociology and I'd never taken a class in sociology in my whole life. So I spent sort of several years at Columbia, you know, almost like doing a second PhD. The other thing that was happening was that we were sort of going through this, the beginnings of this web 2.0 revolution, you really start to see all of this data getting generated. And so we were pretty early on in using the web as a tool to do social science. And it became increasingly apparent to me that that sociology, whether it wanted to or not, was becoming a computational field. Uh, And that was very difficult to adapt to from within a sociology department, even one that was sort of relatively open-minded like Columbia's. Uh, And so... That was what really kind of pushed me to leave uh, and go to Yahoo Research. Uh, so I spent about four and a half years doing that uh, at Yahoo. And then uh, about three years ago, uh, many of us moved over to Microsoft Research, which is, which is where we are today. You're, you're right that that last paragraph does sound prescient. Uh, but there might be a, a different reason for that, which is that you know, network science evolved the way it did because people read that last paragraph. You know? <laughs> um, I, I mean, I think we did think hard about the possible implications, and, and I think that, that some of that is reflected in, in, in what's happened since. But I, I also think that, that uh, you know, the existence of that paper kind of set things off on a particular track uh, that we're still, you know, that we're still plowing. That is all the time we have for the first episode of the Cycle of Mathematics miniseries here at Relatively Prime. I want to thank Duncan Watts for the interview, and I want to thank all of my patrons on Patreon who have made it possible for me to do this episode and all of the previous episodes in Season 3. This specific episode has been a long time coming. I've been working on it off and on for quite a while. As a matter of fact, I've been working on this entire mini-series for quite a long time. And the only reason that I'm able to do that and still survive is because of my patrons on Patreon. So if you want to be like them and help me continue making the show, head on over to patreon.com slash relprime or relprime.com slash support and kick in whatever you can. The music on this episode was from PC3 and Jazzar. You can find them both over at the Free Music Archive. Relatively Prime is licensed with a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike license, so please feel free to remix and reuse however you want, as long as you say it came from here. And that is just about it. So, please stay tuned for the next episode of The Cycle of Mathematics, where we talk about publication. And until then, have a math month. Mm-hmm.